Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this episode. There were some technical difficulties in the beginning, so there's a little bit of a pause. This is an interview that uh, I had with Mike Mocker. Uh, He's a new grad, and he reached out for a candid conversation, and so we had a candid conversation. There were some issues that I had on my end, audio-wise, and so you may hear me yelling or some deep pauses in between as... At that point, I was catching a strong echo in my my headphone. But aside from that, enjoy the show. Hey. <laughs> Second time's a charm. <laughs> After a lot of technical difficulties. That's cool. What's going on, Ben? Um, so so where do we want to start? Tell me, let's start from the very beginning. Tell me what got you. All right, so my story's a little different, right? Um, yeah, it, it, it has to start off with my origin story before we go anywhere else. Uh, you know, I'm a one of seven, so I'm the youngest of seven, and none of my siblings graduated from high school. And uh, we lived in an area that was uh, definitely inner city, you know, gang gang ravaged. You know, our house was shot up, our house was burned down. Um, you know, we're, I mean, blessed just to be here, right? And I was studying to be a teacher. I had absolutely no plans on becoming a physical therapist. I was studying to be a teacher, and... One of the classes that I took had, uh, it was upper level biology. And in this upper level biology, there were also PT students in there. Uh, one of the PT professors came in to teach the course, uh, to teach one of one or two classes. And, you know, I mean, I'm a meathead, you know, like former state powerlifting champ, you know, strong man, you know, uh, I mean, I'm a meathead. And so he was asking to me, which were meathead questions, you know, which muscles work when you do this? And, you know, so my hand shot up, my hand shot up, my hand. And I was the one answering all the questions, even though he was the PT professor. None of the PTs were answering the questions or PT students were answering the questions. So he pulled me aside after class and he said, hey, I think you would be good in this career as a physical therapist. (laughs) I said, dude, I'm like this close to graduating from school and I never plan on going back again. Right. So like I'm almost done with my bachelor's. I'm going to be a science teacher, biology teacher. And uh, and I'm good. Um, And, you know, he said, look, I talked to your advisor. Yeah, school comes easy to me. Right. So I was a three, eight, nine GPA. And uh, he says, look, your GPA plus the stuff that you do outside of class, you're you're a shoe in to get into PT school. So I did some of my student teaching, um, started teaching a little bit and I, I wasn't satisfied. So I called him back and I said, hey, uh, is this still open? <laughs> is this still available? So I, I, I don't have that typical story where I always wanted to be a PT. Um, it was a door that opened and I walked through. Very cool. Very cool. 
I, I like hearing those like different stories versus oh I was an athlete and uh, in junior high school you know now I wanted to be a yeah that's that's, that's, that's not me at all <laughs> cool cool so can you tell me um, as far as your community where you work what what is that like because I know nothing about it and I'm sure others don't know like who don't know you. All right, so you know, I, I started off going from uh, Spine Specialty Clinic, where it was all um, MDT or McKenzie based, and uh, and then I went to a hospital clinic where I started, uh, or to a hospital, and we started emergency department physical therapy. You know, I was the the flag bearer for that, and uh, and I started a rapid spine care program, and I, I felt like I had topped out everything that I did at the hospital, so it was time for me to go back home. You know, back to the area that I grew up in, and I felt like I could give back and. The area that I practice now, it's uh, very mixed racially. Um, the demographics, it's a lower income area. So, you know, we have a lot of Medicaid patients or Medicaid of secondaries. And uh, it's, it's not easy to practice there if you're not from the area because, you know, it's, and even patients, you know, some patients that come in that aren't originally from the area, they, they're still trying to learn, like, where should they be at in, in terms of the city? Because historically there's been areas of the city that are more um, gang ravaged or, uh, you know, gunfire than, and, and it's real life, you know, that's just what it is, uh, than, than other areas. And so they're, they're still trying to figure out which areas have been historically safe versus not safe. But uh, I, I thrive in that community, you know, because these people, they, uh, you know, I grew up there, they smell bullshit, you know, they, they understand if you're, if you're faking, um, and, and they can read you because, you know, these are, these are people from the streets, you know, and, and, and that's what I really like about working here is that you have to be authentic with these people because they're going to smell that out and they're going to stop showing up. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, I wonder how, I wonder, I feel like a lot of people are like that in this, in the way, like if you're over the top and you're fake, um, people will pick up on it, but yeah, I, I'm thinking about that in my context. I used to work at a facility where um, one of the clinicians was extremely fake, and they somehow away with it. And I didn't. And I was like, "You're so fake." Every everybody, everybody else talked about how they were fake, and it just. I don't know. I, I appreciate that. You know, you gotta. If you want to connect with a person, the best way is to be genuine. Right. First and of all. And, 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 you know, you, you have to look at it from, from both sides of the coin, though, right? So, like, if the clinic that I'm in right now, it's a lower socioeconomic clinic. But before that, I was in a higher socioeconomic clinic. And so you, you can't be the same person in both clinics. You know, you can't have, um, you know, rap music blasting in both clinics in that case, right? Because some, some patients just don't appreciate it. And, uh, and, and if I spoke and treated the same way that I speak and treat now, I would have definitely been looked at as a, as an outcast in the clinic where, you know, the average income was those above a hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, because everybody that I was treating with was and for the most part white, you know, at, at that clinic for the most part white, um, you know, we had one African American person on staff and me Mexican. Um, and yeah, we were the two minorities, but the way that we spoke, it, we mixed, we blended in well with them, right? 
And if I come across with that same pattern where I'm treating now, it's just not as well uh, received by the patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to tailor your approach. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned it, so I'm going to bring it up. Well, you mentioned a little bit of something. I'm going to okay. use that this segue. Um, as far as not being white, um, have you, what kind of biases have you dealt with in your career, in your education, training, and experience? Okay, I'll bring up one, because uh, this one, it's. Uh, Okay, again, I gotta go historically, right? So okay. growing up in that area, my parents made a different decision with me than they did with my siblings. They sent me to a private high school, whereas my brothers and sister got sent to uh, the public high school in the area. And so, you know, from freshman year on, I was, again, I, th I think in a, there were probably 300, no, 200 and some kids in our class, and there were enough minority students to fill up a small table in the cafeteria right, in, in our class. And so I've always been, since freshman year, in that predominantly white, um, I guess, situation would be the best way, best way to say it. And so I've, I've learned how to communicate with a bunch of different races, right, and a bunch of different socioeconomic uh, um, participants because that's just how I grew up. And it wasn't until uh, PT school that... I actually saw some of that uh, racial bias. Um, you know, I had been able to communicate with everybody, but in PT school, there was a, a professor, I'm not gonna say her name, but there was a professor who called me out for being Mexican and not being willing to take a day off of work to go do minority, um, almost like a minority step-up day, which I was told about at last minute you know, and, and again, through PT school, I was working. Um, and she told me about this, the, like, this was like a Wednesday. And the, this minority step-up day was on Saturday. And she said, Vince, being Mexican, you should be willing to do this. <laughs> and I blew up, right? And so it's very rare that you see me go unprofessional, but I, the ghetto came out in me, right? And I started dropping F-bombs on her. I went off because... I had never felt that bias before in my life. Nobody had ever treated me like that. I mean, not since, you know, we freshman year of high school, you know, move, going into that almost all white environment, nobody had ever used the race card against me. And uh, yeah, I went off because it's not appropriate. And especially it wasn't appropriate coming from a professor. So yeah, I was pissed. Um, but that's the last time, you know, uh, when you talk to me, you can't tell that, that I'm Mexican. Right. Um, it, and and it, I don't know. I don't have an accent. You know, I rarely ever speak Spanish unless the patient's Spanish speaking. So it's just you really can't tell my race just by looking at me. Some people call me Italian, which is fine. I, I don't really care what you call me just as long as, you know, we're on good terms. So but, yeah, that's that's really the only time that I've ever felt that racial issue. OK, OK. Uh, it's just it's intriguing to me to learn because everybody has a different experience. Like I've, I've had experiences where people learn that um, I'm Jewish and then they give me a hard time because of that. Or um, people learn that my parents are immigrants and they've given me a hard time over that. 
um, and they, they've said inappropriate. I, I, um, I don't understand why anybody would give a hard time because it's like we're all in this together. You know, we're all trying to figure out how to make it. No, no one person is better than another person. You know, and so I, I don't understand that mentality of giving anybody a hard time based off of their parents' background or based off of their religion because we're all, we're all running the same race. You know, we're all trying to figure out how to do better for ourselves and better for our family. And for somebody to knock you down on, on, I just, I don't understand it. I don't understand the purpose of knocking somebody else down. Ignorance. Uh, yeah. Also, a feeling of superiority. Uh, but it happens, you know, like I've, I've heard stuff, like even as in, you know, like I'm in my 30s and I still hear stuff. I still see inappropriate stuff, even on Facebook. People yeah, yeah. Facebook is different for me because Facebook is keyboard war warriors. You know, it's I I, yeah. I personally don't think that people would have the same type of discussions if they were face to face one on one as they would if there was an uh, you know that anim anonymity. Um, and and one of the things that I've I've learned uh, probably in the past three or four years is that people will put you down to try to build themselves up because it makes them feel better about where they're at in life, if you're not doing as well, or if, if they can knock you down a rung or two on the ladder. Um, and to that, I say, great, you know, good for you. If that's what makes you feel better, I'm sorry, you know, but uh, it's not, it's not how I live. It's not what I choose to hang out with. And, and those are the types of conversations that I try to, to jump out of on, uh, on mm -hmm. Facebook. Yeah. Oh, but then it also like the one thing to think about is the unconscious things people in general do um, when they don't think about it but it's just like how they've been brought up or, or their experiences and people are treating somebody slightly differently you know or, or you know like they start treating um, somebody who's uh, let's say uh, or, sorry the politically correct term is a person of color um, okay. I, I believe so, yeah uh, they who's a person of color uh, a, a bit differently versus uh, a, you know a Caucasian individual there's there's it's like I've I've been really thinking about being mindful of and realizing that we all have some kind of unconscious bias that we are not aware of. Yeah, and, you know? and I think we all have different experiences in life like you were saying you know so I'll give you a, a great example um, a student that I had recently has never felt a struggle, right? And has never been to, I'm, to use the term, the other side of the tracks. You know, has always been on essentially the Caucasian side of the tracks. Um, everybody is well off. And when this student watched me in the clinic, the, um, and he said exactly how I started this, this, this interview was that, I don't treat two different people. I communicate with two different people in different ways in order to get through to them, right? But the only way that you can ever do that is if you've had a little bit of experience into what they're living. And if you don't have any of their experience, if you can't empathize with where they're at in life, then you're going to have a hard time getting through to that person. Not person, not patient. You're going to have a hard time getting through to that person. And I don't care if it's on the street at Wendy's. You know, you're going to have a hard time being able to communicate with people in which you don't share experiences. And so, you know, he, uh, that, that person would ask me, how do I gain that experience? And, you know, and my answer was, you've got to go to the other side of the tracks. You know, you've got to go volunteer at the homeless shelter. You've got to go volunteer at the soup kitchen. 
You've got to go give book bags to, to you know, underprivileged students. You've got to find a way for you to take your, your wealth that you've been given through experience through your parents and, and use that as a leverage point for you to be able to bridge that gap between you and those who are part of the have-nots. And, and in doing so, you also learn. You know, it's, it's a selfish thing. You're, you, you, you do it to give, but you're also doing it to learn. Because the only way you're going to ever be able to, to, to communicate truly and, and genuinely, like we started, with, with all different types of people is to be able to have some sort of experience that they're experiencing. I'll give you another example. You know, um, this is probably 2016, 2017, uh, tw- no, 2015, 2016. I had a patient who invited me to uh, the, the Kingdom Hall, right, Jehovah's Witness. And... You know, I mean, I'd always heard stories, you know, they knock on your door, they, you know, and, and, and they come by every weekend and, you know, and they, they keep knocking because, you know, they have to get their testimony. They have to, you know, be a witness. And, but that was all I really knew. Right. And so, but it was hard for me to understand her place in life and her goals because part of her goals had to do with the church. Right. And so it was, not, it was hard for me to understand her goals if I didn't understand part of that life for her. She invited me to the kingdom hall. I went probably seven to 10 times and, and studied with them and understood their service. And, and I learned a lot in terms of what they believe. Um, and it, it made the communication between her and I a lot better and a lot easier for me to understand her goals. We just, we have to put ourselves into their situations at least a little bit. We have to be willing to give a little bit um, in, in order to better be able to communicate between the two of us. That's fair. Yeah. Um, it's an inter- it's there's like there's different ways to approach it i think uh, i wouldn't know and it's it's something like for me i deal with a lot of people who have completely different lives than me so i mean some people you know they have some similarities but it's still different i'm i'm not from this where i work i'm from the east um i'm from the mid atlantic the culture is different, um, so I think the only thing I could I could add to that is sit down and, and listen, mm-hmm. really listen to what they have to say, and think about that before just jumping on it and saying whatever you have to say. Right. You know, like um, sometimes that's a huge deal, especially for people who have had really bad experiences with other healthcare providers. Yeah, and, and, and part of it is it's going out and getting the experience. So it goes just beyond listening. So, like, I'll give you an example. Um, when I first came back to the city that I grew up in, um, you know, I was the new guy in town again. Uh, I put out feelers, and I was doing a ton of community education, a ton of community education. And uh, But the, the first time that you do it, you have to get that first yes. Somebody has to invite you in, right? And... And at the time, my, <laughs> I had a, a student at the time, you know, and the student was afraid to go with me for that first time. Um, the, the first person that said yes, I still have a great relationship with him to this date. You know, it's, uh, if, uh, you know, Garland Mays. Garland Mays was the first person to say yes to me in, in the city of Joliet. And, and because Garland said yes to me, I don't know how many book bags I've donated to their back-to-school charity, right, that uh, their, their fundraiser every, every uh, September or 
July, August, um, just because he asked, you know, he said yes to me. So I, I have an obligation to say yes, to do as much as I can to help out financially, if that's what, it, if that's what it takes. But, um, but Garland is the president of an, of, uh, of the, the, the forest park neighborhood association. And, and, it, and it's had a, a moniker, which I won't use because he's, he's trying to get away from it, but it had a moniker growing up in the 1980s, 1990s when I was there, you know, and it was very dangerous. And so when he said yes, I looked at the address as to where he wanted to go, and, and I got a little nervous at first, because that was an area where even growing up in that, in that area, I wasn't able to go. I wasn't allowed there, right, because my skin color was a little bit different. But with an invitation, there was no way in, in, in hell I was passing it up. And so I went there, and the people were extremely gracious to me. They invited me back multiple times, and, um, and, and it's through that shared experience that now... Um, I would say 20 to 30% of my patients come from that area, right? Because I was willing to, to extend, extend myself out to that area and not many people do that. Right. And, and a lot of people that, you know, that I invited to that meeting to come hear me speak about back pain, um, they didn't, they refused to go, you know, they were, they were afraid. And even people who lived in that area were afraid to go to that meeting. And this is something that I've addressed with Garland too, um, is not just promotion, but, you know, making sure that, you know, we're, we're trying to get everybody that's in that area out to these meetings. Um, but that one, that one invite from Garland, uh, over the course of the, the, the whole next year, I probably got in front of 1200 people and, and it all had to do with that one yes from Garland. And, and, and I completely thank Garland. That's one of the reasons why, like I said, I will always give back as much as I can financially to, uh, to, that, to their causes because Garland, you know, he, he extended the olive branch. He said, please come, come and help us, come and educate us and, and give us what you got. And, and nobody else is willing to do that at the time. But after he said yes, like I said, over the course of the year, I was in front of 1,200 different individuals. That's amazing. Wow. So do you do, I mean, it sounds like you do a lot of community. You're involved in the community a lot. We have to be, right? It's our community. It's who we serve. They need to see that we serve them. And it, it can't just be marketing ploys. You know, they need to see that we serve them. Um, I do discovery visits, right? With absolutely no expectation that I'm going to sign them up for a plan of care because that's not the goal. The goal is in, in some of these communities, like some of these people, they don't trust healthcare providers, period, right? And so my first goal is to get them to trust the healthcare provider so that way maybe I can get them to go see their primary care physician who they haven't seen in forever. So it's not just about me getting the plan of care. It's more about me making sure that they are getting their healthcare needs looked at because a, a lot of them haven't been to a doctor in forever. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. That's a legitimate concern. Uh, it's, I don't, like, currently I don't deal with that, but I've seen it before where they do, they just, they're like, they're very, very skeptical. I, I, I used to work a lot with, um, my previous job, I worked with people who are, um, a lot of, uh, migrant workers and, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, um, manual laborers, uh, who English was, let's say a second language, but kind of not. <laughs> right. So, you know, there was a skepticism. I mean, some of them were a little skeptical. Some of them were very like, oh, I'll do whatever you tell me, you know, and like kind of finding that balance, of, you know, 
with one group you're trying to gain their trust with the other group you're trying to tell them like you do have a say you know like i had i had one patient she was uh she had a you know a rotator cuff repair and the way the surgeon would handle her he would like manhandle her without her permission so i had to coach her up on how to like handle that interaction and we literally did like we did a, like a practice we just practiced it over and over how she would respond because he would just open the door and just grab her arm and start jerking her <laughs> right, around right nice to meet you let so me I, move you around <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it was like, uh, so like what words to use like stop with the interpreter there it was pretty entertaining but uh yeah it's like it's a process uh, it's an interesting one, though. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so that, this makes me think about, like, earlier you mentioned powerlifting and that how that knowledge was very useful in that class and how that somehow led you to PT. Right. So now that you've worked for a while, how do you integrate that experience as a lifter? Uh Man, that's so I, I don't even want to say that that's an experience because that's part of who I am now. Right. So, uh, again, I give, you know, mad props. I got to train and learn from and, and I say this frequently because I want to make sure, uh, you know, uh, I've heard it said before that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Right. And 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 in powerlifting. I trained with, you know, the team that I was on had Craig Tukarski, the first man to ever bench press 700 pounds, Mark Cellino, top 40 in the world at the 242 weight class. I've got to, to work out with Eddie Cohn. I learned from Dr. Squat, Fred Hatfield, um, you know, 20 some years ago. I got to learn from the greats in the sport. And, and I, man, I'm like humbled that they actually took the time, you know, like in order for me to train with Mark and Craig, you know, they told me, cause I was weak, you know I mean? I was, had very low self-confidence in the gym. Um, and, and I definitely wasn't the strongest person. I enjoyed mechanics. I, I, I loved understanding how the body moved, but, uh, but I definitely didn't have strength. You know, I wasn't the strongest guy. And so they told me, <laughs> Hey kid, um, go train with the girls over there. And when you become stronger than the strongest girl, you can come train with us, you know? And, and I was like 21 cocky, headstrong, um, I'm like train with the girls. I got this, you know? And, uh, and one of the girls, Shelly, Shelly, she's Shelly was a world champion, right? She had just come back from, I think it was Germany, uh, winning the world championships. And so Shelly had a 480 squat. Shelly had a 300 pound bench. Shelly had a 450 deadlift. I wasn't stronger than Shelly. You know, and so it really humbled me to, and I learned as much as I can from the girls in order for me to go train with the guys. And so, like, for me, it doesn't matter where the knowledge comes from. It just matters that you're getting better day to day, week to week. So it doesn't matter where you start. Uh, almost all of my patients will squat in some way. And I don't care what the way is, right? I mean, my lower level patients may be squatting from a 24-inch platform. You know, and, and I'm just working on that hip hinge area. You know, if the, I mean, I've got some 90-year-olds that we're just teaching them how to hip hinge in order to initiate the squat because they have knee pain. Uh, but, the, uh, yeah, I mean, just about everything I do, that power lifting mentality is always there. And, um, and how to progress and how to regress, um, you, you know, 
periodizations, all of that stuff is in the is in my head when I'm trying to figure out how to take the patient from point A to point B over the course of however long I'm gonna see them for their plan of care. Mm-hmm. Okay. So So as far as do you ever get all right, so like you're dealing with a wide range of people, right, in terms of their situation. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming it Si- that, that- situation, yes, but age, it's typically no younger than 30 and all the way up till 98, 99. Okay. So how often do you get people who, who you can really, like, push? You feel you're, very, you're comfortable getting Very rare, like, that I'm dealing with an athlete. Very rare. Um You know, I've had some um, CrossFit competitors come to me uh, because they had pain with specific motions like the snatch or the uh, back squat. Um, And and that was only because they heard of my previous history of competition. And so they came to me because of that. But I don't market that at all. My, my, you know, you've, you've, I don't know if you've heard the term, but the avatar, right? My avatar is a, a female Medicare recipient. I somehow I communicate very well with that patient um, more so than I think I communicate with athletes. Um, I, I think my communication style best fits that. Uh, you know, even though like I, I get told a lot that I need to slow down when I speak, but for some reason when I speak to them, it's just natural that, that this interaction back and forth where I, I slow it down. But for everybody else, I, it, yeah, I, I don't communicate as well with the other populations. Okay. Um, well, so I like didn't I didn't necessarily mean it. What I meant to say is like for example, like what I I tend to find is it, there's a, a mentality sometimes blocking people from being able to push further um, in terms of people like I'm gonna like very simple tasks like say giving somebody a carry, right? A lot of people when they see a weight the weight involved to carry, like say even 25 pounds, they're a little mm-hmm. nervous because just, they never thought about those shopping bags or grocery bags or whatever they lift and carry at home as being like a specific weight. So when they see that weight, they're they're nervous. Um, at least some, what the, some of the people I, I have treated, they get really, like even 10 pounds I have, which is nothing, right? But to them, it's really heavy. Right, and then um, just getting them to do that, and then some people kind of are like, "Okay, this is okay," and we can keep progressing and progressing. And other people are a little bit scared of more. And you, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, now I understand the question. Um, I don't typically run into those problems, and and the biggest reason is is I don't. Well, you heard me say. I mean, I was the weakest guy, you know, on the team. So. Uh, I, I I always start off with, it doesn't matter where you're at right now. I, I don't care if we're only going to start off with a pound, but I want to start off with something that the patient is comfortable with. And, and mm-hmm. once they're comfortable with it and then they become confident with it, then it's easy to convince them to increase the weight a little bit. And when we jump up in weight, you know, I, I make sure that it's also a weight that they're comfortable jumping up with because as much as I want to push them and I want to, I, I want to load them, 
We have to take their belief system into account. It can't just be me pushing them into what I think they should be doing. They need to understand that they need to come to that re uh, realization for themselves that this is something that they want to do. And so there's a lot of, of conversation that goes around that loading from one to five pounds. You know, it's, uh, well, you ever put a gallon of milk back in the fridge? You know, it's, it's making it real world for them. Well, that's, you know, a gallon of milk is eight pounds. So do you think you can handle five? Oh, well, yeah, you know, they start to, to wrap things up and understand that, well, five pounds, I guess five pounds isn't that much, you know, and, and once they become comfortable and confident with five pounds, then I'll take them up to eight pounds, right? Because I'm going to push that milk gallon for them. And then we're going to work on a little bit longer of that endurance with the milk gallon before I would even consider taking them up to 10 pounds. They have to be confident, they, they, you know, and, and they have to want to do it. Otherwise, it's just me pushing my agenda on them. Yeah. Um... I agree with you. I also think that, I mean, I try to work within the context of people's goals, but I also find that they're just so, like, even the patients who have PT, they're so underloaded. Like, it's, they need to get back to doing, like, their goals, when they, when I hear their goals, what they want to get back to doing, I always see a trend where there there's just tremendous underloading. Well, I don't always see this. That's an unfair. But I often hear that, and we have to talk about loading strategies. And and you're right, putting into context of what they need to do and being comfortable with that and understanding what it means and how it's not so threatening or dangerous. And you know, sometimes I just talk about getting out of the the situation, like. Let's say they feel threatened by something. I had a patient yesterday who felt very threatened by, I mean, not yesterday, Friday. I had a patient on Friday who was very threatened by the, the concept of a, a front squat with the barbell. Mm -hmm. Terrified. Terrified. So I said, hey, like, why don't we take a moment? I'm going to give you a very, we have a very small bar, like 10 pounds, which she's comfortable with. And I said, okay, let's get into a position. And I just worked on fails, like escapes, like just dropping the weight. Um, and sometimes that's enough to show them, like, you always have an out. You always have, you always have the option to step away, but you might as well try. You have nothing to lose. Yeah, and, and so I, I go about that a little bit different, right? So let's say that I were trying to get to a front squat is there a less threatening version of the front squat for the patient? So can I give them a goblet squat? You know, they still have that yeah. anterior load. Um, it's still, I'll keep it the same weight, but they may feel more in control of it because it's easier for them to visualize dropping that and then load up the goblet squat from there. Um, there's just, there's so many options that we can go towards in order to meet an end goal for us, but the patient still has to be willing to do it. Cause like you said, they have the option to say no. Yeah, we're progressing from the goblet squat. So we had actually done more weight with the goblet squat they had than with just the barbell. So I was like, okay, they're ready. And yet, psychologically, they weren't completely ready. Right, right. And, then, and that was an thing. And, and again, for those patients, I go back to what's the end goal? You know, is this patient going back to the gym where they're going to be doing front squats? If they are, then yeah, I'm going to get that patient front squatting. 
if the patient's not going back to the gym, but they're staying at home, I might stay with a goblet squat and teach them how to load up a pillowcase with weight in order for them to do the goblet squat at home instead of buying a kettlebell. Um, and, and so figure out how to make that real world for them to apply within their own home um, without having to go to the gym because many patients just, they're not going to progress to a barbell because they're not going to go to a gym. Yeah, yeah. In this case, kind of, it's a chronic long-term situation. So it's kind of like they're coming there for, for the loading specifically. Mm -hmm. They want to learn because it's, so we treat a lot of people with EDS. Mm -hmm. Where I, where I, and so the one of the key things is, it's not just the loading, but the loading with intention and mindfulness and understanding, um, like getting the proprioception. There's a, like there's difficulties with proprioception for that group generally. It's, um, I I don't have a, a great proven, uh, reason for why there they have deficits in proprioception but they just do. And so working on different loading strategies where they have to improve that, and that, that's one of the reasons why I like the idea of the front squat for that person, was because they would have to take off their shoes and feel that motion and feel every part of it. And the worst case, like I said, there's always an out. But like getting that, because they have like, they have a, a bunch of kids in the house. They have to do a lot of things. And often they don't think about the things they do and they just do them and then they get hurt. You, I don't know how often you deal with that. Probably somewhat. That's a human thing. Right. But just like working on stuff to kind of build up their awareness under load. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it comes back to whatever the, what is specific to the patient. So if the patient, I had a patient they just wanted to come in to get their shoulder pain down. That's right. all they cared about. Young guy, didn't care about that, the, the loading. So we went through stuff, and we said, you know, after six visits, I was like, okay, you're, you're pretty good. You know, um, here's what you want to look into if you want to learn more. Um, you know, if, you, if this, this comes back, give me a call. Uh, I wish you the best. But really putting in the context of each individual is absolutely important. I agree with you. Yeah, that's, that's, a, it, and, and that's what I think we need to do more of instead of focusing on how many sessions we have the patient for or focusing on, you know, what's the plan of care going to be? How long can we stretch this out? We, we have to take each patient into, as an individual and figure out what their goals are and how can we help them get there? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's been fascinating because in my, this new clinic it's very different than anything i've ever seen before and the things i see i'm sometimes my eyes open because like just the movement like i don't know if you've seen like some wacky motions but when i i see some stuff where i'm like whoa you can't do this very basic little thing you're like i i once had a patient who would like you know pnfd2 yeah for shoulder they would do this like that, like their 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 wrist would flail, and their their whole arm would flail, and I. That's what you see, in in the clinic where I work. So it's very different. You have to start at the lowest point, and these are young people, and build them up to the point where they can get to that, 
what I was just talking about, even the front squat. Right. Um, it's a journey and it's an interesting one, but it's still like, it's interesting how it, get, it made me realize that all of these assumptions that I would unconsciously make, I had to just get rid of everything. I had to just look at the person and be like, okay, I don't care like about general location. I don't care about um, pattern recognition. I just have to listen to the person. Yeah, and then create the game plan. Yeah, create the game plan after you figure out where you're starting from. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot lot to it, and I just didn't realize that. Um, Working in a clinic where it was just like your traditional chain clinic or, you know, a big – I worked in a giant mega sports-oriented – building i mean most of our patients weren't athletes but it was sports oriented building so like immediately the impression was different in such an environment um now i'm working in a clinic where i'm pretty much the only exercise focused clinician that can be hard (laughs) that in and of itself can be hard it's it's so now i'm treated as that exercise uh, male too um, so it's it's interesting because I just do totally different things and there there's a lot of eye-opening for them like they always there's a lot of like what is he doing um, but the discomfort of not having a conversation it it's fascinating yeah but um, it just makes you realize you know so is there has there ever been a, a moment as a clinician where you just had this eye-opening experience where you're like Jesus. oh wow um yeah so i'll give a couple of examples you know um first as a student uh bill curtis owner of pt and spine he came and gave a lecture uh, at governor's about the mckenzie method and it, it you know i don't know how long you've you've followed me at all but i enjoy research right i enjoy reading research it's fun for me and and it gives me comfort, right? I take comfort in knowing what's been published and, you know, reading the methods. Like, I take comfort in knowing the research. And he came and gave a lecture, and it had absolutely zero research in it, right? It was um, his experience using the McKenzie Method. Some of the coursework that he's taken, you know, and I'll, he's taken a lot of courses, but some of the coursework that he's taken, he's put that into his presentation. And uh, after the, you know, again, I grew up, you know, on the other side of the tracks. And so <laughs> after the presentation, you know, uh, I waited until everybody was starting to clear out, and then I, I pulled him aside. I said, look, man, I call BS on this, dude. Um, you just gave a presentation with zero references. Why am I to believe you? And he said, look, you don't have to believe me. Just come to a clinical with me. And so, you know, I'm a lucky person. Fate would have it. I got number one pick second round. And I said, I'm going to that guy's clinic because I want to call BS in his face. And, um, mm-hmm. day one, you know, and, and mind you, I had worked as a tech for a short period of time while I was in PT school and they saw back pain and back pain was lingering for three months and, you know, ultrasound, east dim, massage, um, mush, you know, and, um, and then I go to his clinic on week one and damn near everybody's doing press-ups and I had never seen a press-up before. Right. Um, and so I'm like, this is like a cult, man, <laughs> you've got everybody doing the exact same thing. There's no, there, there's nothing different. And um, week two, everybody's better, 
right? Week two, everybody's like fantastically better. And I had never seen progress like that before. I was like, what the hell did I just miss? Um, and so I asked him, I said, well, what happened? He said, this is the McKenzie method. We use directional preference. I'm like, I don't understand. He said, okay, I'm going to take you to a study group. And again, I am just completely blessed in my career, right? Because in this study group, it was, I don't know if you know Tom Lotus, but Tom is a chiropractor for Midwest Ortho, Ortho at Rush. Um, and, you know, man, I learned directly from Tom sitting next next to Tom. Annie O'Connor, I don't know if you know Annie and Melissa. Uh, Annie O'Connor and Melissa Kolsky, authors of A World of Hurt. Um, you know, they're in the group. Um, Jane Borshammer, she's an instructor for, the, for MDT now. She's in the group. Ella, I mean, just like names that in the McKenzie world are, whew, you know, way up here, right? And, uh, and I got to sit and be a fly on the wall for these people. For two years, I got to learn from them. And it was just fascinating for me because I got to learn from people who were pushing themselves. And, you know, we would go to the study group on Thursdays from 7 to 9, and we we're treating real patients, right? It's not something where we're just discussing journals. These are patients where the therapists are having trouble figuring out what's going on, and so they're bringing the patient to the study group. And, and as a group think tank, we're trying to classify and figure out how we can help this patient, or should we even be working with this patient, right? And then after the study group, we would go to the blue, some sort of, I don't know what it was, the blue dragon, something like that, a bar across the street from, um, from RIC there on 10, 1030 North Clark. And we would discuss research until midnight. Like, I found my people. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is great. And that was eye-opening for me to see that there were other people like this because that hadn't been the experience that I had in the profession, you know, up through that point, it was get your license, get your minimum amount of CEUs and done, you know, just maintain your license for the rest of your career. And I was with people that were pushing the envelope in terms of their professional ability. And man, that just made me push harder because I had to catch up. And so I was reading and reading a ton. I mean, my first three years out, I was reading 15, 20 hours a week, you know, and, uh, and I was reading just so that way I wouldn't be lost when I was in those study groups with this, with this, fantastic group of people um and and to this day you know always standing on, on the shoulders of giants i'm always going to give them credit for help building me into the therapist that i am so yeah that was definitely eye-opening for me to see that it can be done that you can be a therapist that pushes themselves to be better that's very cool yeah um i think i wonder because like i think about just the experience in school and talking with classmates I want, I don't know, like, a lot of them, it seemed like, at least in, for the outpatient realm, they thought, you got to learn the manips. You got to learn, you got to learn, that's the important thing. Maybe you learn some exercise, but really, man, cracking somebody's back, like those manual skills, like, if you go to a skilled nursing setting, you're going to lose those manual skills. So, and I've heard that from people or from multiple schools it's interesting so go ahead You're yeah so so that manip that's one of the, the biases that i never got right never was that pushed on me to be a manipulator but i saw that coming out you know i read flynn's studies and you know and 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 that was one of the things that i saw the profession going towards and so i took a course um this is the last spinal manip course that i ever took i took a course uh through i, I don't even it doesn't even matter who i took it through uh but 
in the morning, one of the first things that he that the instructor said was, <laughs> this blows my mind, you know, how many people here utilize the McKenzie method in their treatment? Me? Yeah, I raised my hand. I was the only one to raise my hand. And he pointed at me and said, I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't be doing that before we go to lunch. Oh, what secret do you know that I, that I haven't read yet in the research, right? And, uh, and so he pulled out articles from like 1978, 1980. Mind you, this is like 2015, right? Um, talking about the, the downfalls of the McKenzie method and why you should be manipulating. And, um, and I said, sir, is it okay if I speak out, speak freely? You know, and it's like, I don't want to take over your class, right? And again, mind you, I had been reading 15 to 20 hours of research. And I'm not talking methods. I'm talking research papers. And my brain, I cite things. I see them still, right? And so I'm citing authors. I'm citing years. And people in the class are Googling authors and Googling years. And they're like, holy shit. I, we haven't even heard of this research yet. And finally, the teacher said, okay, the discussion's over. Uh, I am sorry that I, I attacked this method. Um, because apparently I attacked the method with the wrong person in the class. And you shouldn't be attacking methods, period, right? Like, just go out and learn as much as you can and, and you know, make, a, make your best choice as to what you should or shouldn't be doing. But that, that really pissed me off because you've got 20 people in the class that you're throwing a bias against one method based off of research that's 30 years old, 40 years old, and then you can't back up your claims when the discussion starts getting heated and so like that that completely turned me away from from other schools of thought and really i've that kind of turned me away from ceus in general so like i met you at the entropy course right and the cormac yeah, yeah ben ben cormac right i met you at the at the at the at ben's course and and i'll be honest with you i had no clue who ben was before i took that course no clue. And I didn't take that course for the content. I mean, the content, I think, was back pain, right? Or, or chronic pain. or Pain, right? Uh, um, yeah. It was uh, therapy, yeah, like, like movement for, for, for back pain. Yeah, movement for, it, it, it was back pain and pain and a lot of research on that, right? Yeah. I, uh, again, I had been reading 15 to 20 hours a week, you know, and I still read, you know, five, six hours a week. And so the research wasn't anything that I thought I was going to get blown out of the water with. And I didn't take that course because Ben was in the course. I didn't take the course because Ben taught the course. I, I took the course, one, because it was hosted at Entropy, and I wanted to say hi to Sandy. I took the course because you were in the course, because even as I think you were still a student back then, um, and... Yeah, you were a student still at Entropy, and, and as a student, you were active on social media, right? And, and I wanted to place a name with a face, and I wanted to say hi to the person who's pushing the profession forward. Jared Hall was in the course. I wanted to say hi to Jared. Brandon Poen was in the course. I wanted to say hi to Brandon. I brought in a bunch of my former students to the course because I wanted to mingle with everybody in the course. And so now when I take courses, I take courses, one, who's going to be there? Is there people there that I want to have conversations with during breaks? Because I spent my entire break picking everybody's brain more so than, you know, 
taking a break or, or covering the stuff that we had just covered. I wanted to have conversations with real people and figure out what they were doing and where they were going in their life and, you know, what their professional goals were. Because for me, that's fun and interesting. That helps build me as a clinician. And, and I get to see where am I at compared to people that I converse with, compared to people that I look up to, compared to people that I think are, are doing a great thing for the profession. You know, and where am I at? I didn't take the course for Ben. And, and honestly, I mean, I'm glad I took the course because now I friended Ben and, and I'm, you know, I, I follow Ben on Twitter and, you know, and, and we can have professional discussions, but before the course, I had no clue who he was. Yeah. Um, I actually, uh, honestly, I didn't know who Ben was until I met him. So I met him, I think the day before or two days before. <laughs> right. before I signed up for the course because it was at Entropy and people had told me like, if you're get entropy take as much continuing education there as possible because you're going to get a discount and it's a rare opportunity it's like a special place and as a student i can tell like when i was training there as a student there's nothing like it. Yeah. nothing there's nothing i'm in a i'm in a unique situation now and it's still nothing not remotely like right. entropy yeah so yeah I mean, I signed up for the course kind of blindly. Um, I didn't know who was going to be there. I mean, that's a good way of, of looking. Like, I also think, like, you know, if smart people are going to be at a course, maybe it's more of a valid course, right? You get to have a conversation um, um, versus, like, you know, some random company has a course. I don't know. I'm not a big, I'm not a big believer in the, the company, you know, those big chain courses. But, um, yeah, it was an interesting discussion. I thought that course was pretty good. Uh, Ben's a pretty smart guy. Right. I'll say right. that. And, and I've learned yeah. more about, about Ben since the course, more so than at the course. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, but I thought that the, the direction of that specific course was interesting just because um, – it's so different than the way a lot of the American courses are. Like a lot of the American courses are are very like, all right, we're going to do this model. They're going to use one model, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's um, manual model or McKenzie or something. It's always right. like, this is this model. We're going to teach this model instead of saying, hey, let's come up with ideas. Let's let's here here's a here's what we know, you know. We have this much information, but then there's this much, so much that we don't know. So let's play with things. Let's let's try ideas. Let's communicate, and that type of discussion-oriented concept is is still kind of rare, I think. Yeah. In, in courses. Yeah, and, and so like, and this is one of the things that I tell students now, you know, or, or new grads is, you know, if there's a topic that you really want to learn, go read the research take the courses for the discussions that you're going to have take the courses for the the speaker not necessarily the topic because the you know like i again sandy is amazing sarah's awesome you know and and it's it's through other courses that i've learned about them i mean i i first met sandy at a east central district meeting for illinois um when she gosh this was three four years ago i just debated coming out with a blog and um, Sandy had already had her podcast, I think Pain, Science, and Sensibility, and I'd been listening to the podcast, and once I knew that she was speaking, I listened to as many episodes of the podcast as I could, 
um, before I actually met her. So that way I could try to have an intellectual discussion with her because I, di I didn't know who she was. Um, and her knowledge on chronic pain just blew mine away. Right. And so, um, but I had uh, conversations with Sandy about, uh, and at the time I wasn't even on Twitter. Right. And so conversations with Sandy about social media, about um, putting out information and, and I learned just so much. And it was only like an hour that I spent with her. Uh, about how to promote the profession. So, yeah, I mean, and, and that's, again, the, one of the reasons why I took the course at Entropy was, again, to have another conversation with Sandy. That's cool. I mean, that's that's a, a good way to approach it. I, um, um, you know, there's no perfect way of looking at it, but I think that I, I'm a little worried about the people who are like, I got to take a course to learn, like, this specific thing. Right. Like, I got to learn how to uh, I, there's a lot of students and new grads who take um, interventional focused uh, courses and I I mean I took some but I didn't take them for that reason and I think it's something that sometimes get gets lost in translation through school yeah exactly exactly yeah um, it's just hard because, so I think about like what you're telling me, like students a lot of times don't know anybody. They know they have a very, <laughs> they have a very small window, right? Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah. And, and, but part of that, again, this is where I, you're going to see, I'm a huge fan of just taking responsibility for your own education. Right. And so if students don't know anybody, it's because they didn't spend the time to read any of the research, to understand the authors, to follow the author. To, so they didn't put the time in on their own. They're depending on other people to tell them what they should know. Um, for instance, um, Mark Wernicke, right? I had the chance to meet, again, standing on the shoulder of giants. I had a chance to meet Mark at uh, the MDT conference in Texas. And after Mark spoke, and, and he spoke right around lunchtime because I remember everybody was getting up to leave, <laughs> and Mark's a giant. I mean, he's literally, he's way taller than I am. Um, and it's my first time meeting him. And I'm a fanboy, right? I'm a fanboy of the research. I'm a fanboy of the authors. And so, you know, I mean, I was literally fanning out, you know, when I met Mark Wernicke. I was like, dude, you know who you are. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I am that dork. I took a journal article. I took his directional preference article, um, the, the descriptive analysis of directional preference. And I'm like, hey, can you autograph this article for me? Right. And because I'm that dork. Right. I'm that fanboy. And if the student doesn't know who they should be studying, it's because they haven't put any time in to even start. Because if you put the time in to start, you'll start understanding what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. And then when you find what you enjoy, then you just go out and do more of it. And then you try to network with those people that are that are in those trenches. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you from my own experience, I didn't start from the research side, even though I'm. I'd say I'm more research heavy than most, based on my impression of talking to people. Right. Um, I, I'm called the research guy in my clinic. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Uh, so, um, like for me, it was just I don't feel satisfied with the discussions that are going on in school. I don't feel satisfied with this kind of like this is how it is. Learn this type of model that we were going through for everything related to outpatient treatment. Like that was obvious to me that was related to outpatient treatment. 
So I said to myself, I'm not satisfied with this. Uh, I, I, and there was a course actually that I just thought was nonsense, like total not first semester. I was just like, this, this is, this is bullshit. Like <laughs> we're, we're uh, I like asked the professor, how is what you're doing talking about? It was like a, a goniometry course for like a lab course. Mm -hmm. And I was asking her, how is it, how is what you're talking about scientific? And she's like, it's scientific. It's in the textbook. Yeah. And that was enough for me to say, I need other avenues because this is not, this is not going to work for me because this isn't like in physics. I could understand. I could understand like the, like the physics professor, like would cite things and you could understand the science. In this case, there was no science. It was just people made stuff up. So I started going on social media and just connecting with people and listening to what they have to say. And randomly, I drifted into what I, what I have now. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't know about Sandy until social media. And I applied for a contest uh, to get to go to CSM for free. Um, that entropy had, like, they would cover the registration fee. Right. I didn't know who they were. I didn't have any idea. Like, I, I had no idea who most people were. You don't know. Like, um, I can't, yeah, nobody talks about it. Like, some people mention, I think, my kinesiology professor, who's, like, a really highly trained manual therapy fellow, um, he talked about, like, I think he mentioned Peter O'Sullivan mm -hmm. in a course I think in 2018, I want to say, and he um, in a like in that course. But before that, I, you know, never had I ever, um, never had I ever heard a professor mention a name, uh, the type of names that I I think about now. Like maybe, oh yeah, one time some my musculoskeletal professor said. Oh, if you're interested in chronic pain, David Butler is a great guy to, to, to look into. Moving on, and that was the kind of experience. So for me, it's, it's been interesting going through the journey of just connecting with people on social media and talking to them and asking them questions. And, and sometimes I hope I didn't come off as too arrogant online. And, and you can't really judge how arrogant you come across. So, like, that's all subjective for me nowadays. I, I don't even care so much i just try to come across as professional and hope that people see that yeah um and that actually leads me to an to to a question i don't know how much time you have um my kids aren't crying yet so um <laughs> yeah i came outside my 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 uh, six-year-old is watching the other two right now and so she knows to tap on the window if she needs me <laughs> good um so my I, one this is gonna be like like close to a final question, if not a final question. So do you ever see um, early entry PTs, like really early in their career or students, yeah. um, make some really, really um, misinformed statements about clinical care? Um, and if so, you know, have you, what do you, like, how do you approach that? Because that's something I'm trying to be mindful of, like not, not like putting people down even though let's say they say something like really dumb honestly um 
gosh, not not as much do I see that. And, but but there's a reason. But uh, sorry, I'm catching a, a the, an echo. Give me a second. No worries. Gosh, not, not yeah, there's an as echo. much do I see that. And, but but there's a reason. But all right, let's see here. Um, can just try. All right. So here's here's what I see. I'm gonna try to disregard the echo. The students that come in for me, they are given a binder of reading material before they even come into the clinic. And so every PowerPoint presentation that I have ever put together is in a binder, and they all get sent. And they all get sent this binder roughly six to seven weeks before their clinical. When they come in, they don't jump right into treating patients. They watch me treat patients for the first week. And, and they get to see the type of communication that I'm looking for. And they get to see how little I value, you know, 20 or 30 interventions per session. They see that I'm only performing, you know, four interventions per session, right? And because of that, I think it starts to, to mold their communication style with the patients before they ever see the patient. Okay. That's cool. So you're like, you're, you're prepping them basically before exactly. they, they, okay. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I haven't had a student yet. Like I had, um, we had one student at my first job who they just like hung around while I treated somebody and I explained everything. And actually that student seemed great, which was interesting because um, it was like only, I think their first or second clinical, they had come from a manual. They, it was a St. Augustine student um, uh, and our clinic, with the exception of our director was very like, let's get people moving. Um, but it, it was interesting just like, you know, going through that experience working with them. But um, I've never actually had the opportunity to like directly be the CI for somebody, even though my, like a lot of my classmates have already for a while now. And they've, I have one classmate that I talk to that tells me stories that are wild. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's interesting to hear that because every person's going to approach that differently. Yeah, I'd say that I've had over uh, 60 students so far in my career, and I haven't had a student in the past year and a half. I took my first student, I think I was 11 months out, and in order for me to take that student, the school wanted to have a conversation with me. Um, my, my boss had to sign off on me taking students. But yeah, I essentially had to be interviewed in order to be able to take a student uh, before that two years, because I think they recommend that you're two years out before you take a student. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've seen people who are five, six years out who I don't think would be a great fit for a student. I, it really varies. Like some people, I, I can I know somebody, I'm not going to mention them, but they had a student right away as soon as they started their their first job where they had a student right away. And so throughout their whole career, they've had students. Um, and 
I don't know. I haven't gotten to talk to them in a long time, but I'm just thinking about them. I've, I've talked to, talk to one of their students who was not the most satisfied with the experience, but um, it's interesting. I think that there's some legitimacy to that, I think, but there's also the fact that, like, the, the clinician has to be open-minded and they have to be prepared to appreciate where the student is and uh, and just be thoughtful about it instead of just doing things the way they think should be done. Yeah, I think the, the clinician also has to be a strong clinician because, you know, students graduating now are learning more and and as much as those who graduated with the the you know the masters and the bachelors want to say you know they they don't know much more clinically they do learn more in school you know it's like they've learned they're learning more recent research compared to what we knew and so if the clinician is not keeping up with what's happening in the research they may have difficulty managing that new grad yeah no yeah you're right i mean if it's also like just the, um, the, the clinician is not keeping up with what's happening in the research. They may have difficulty managing oh, that oh. new grad. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. I mean, if it's also like yeah. just the, um, the, the clinician is not keeping up with what's happening in the research. Okay, okay. I think it's broken down. Wait, okay, calm down. So. I just think about like I had a we had a student in in the clinic. I'm not going to say where um, that came from, like a really high ranked school, one of those, you know, types. Um, and I can tell you, like, their the their judgment, their perspective was really warped, um, <laughs> and it was interesting to see on the other end, like. You know, you see a student who's like really like set in their ways and kind mm -hmm. of like elitist, you know, um, and it was just fascinating to see because I was like, from the first conversation with them, I was uncomfortable. I was like, what? Like, you can't talk to that, talk like that to to somebody who's a clinician if you're not a clinician. Like, if you're a clinician, you can be obnoxious as you want. But you can't be obnoxious around. And this person was obnoxious to me, and then to the staff, um, you know, the front front desk people. Um, so, and their CI their CI was completely oblivious to all of this, which was I've never brought it up to the CI. I I don't know if I can blame the school for that. Sometimes there's just jackasses that that come into the profession. Yeah. That's it. I mean, it, that could just be a personality of that person. Um, there, I've had some students that are jackasses, don't get me wrong, maybe not those that, that have a certain bias, but they're just jackasses, right? And I have those conversations with the, with the school, and that's something that immediately needs to be addressed, because that person's not staying with me. I mean, we don't get paid to do this. I'm not dealing with a jackass. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I'd be a little bit more, I'd be like, let's go, let's do this. Because I would, I would love to just have the fun of just picking apart their biases, but um, I wasn't the CI of that student, and I don't blame the school, but I do, I do, th I think like every school produces um, some good and some oh, 
a lot of okay and some bad, right? Every school probably does this. Um, I just think it's interesting because there is a mentality by some in PT. When I talk to people who are CIs, they do often look down at certain school students from certain schools versus students from others. This is a habit that I keep hearing about. And I'm just like, how do you know? Like, how do you know? Like, you're just basing off a limited amount of experiences or preconceptions. And it's just, it's been interesting to me because those biases are like so human. And that, that was a starting point of this conversation where that's, that's also an important variable to all of this. The biases of the clinician, the biases as an, as a, as somebody who treats, as an educator, as somebody who works with students, all of that plays a factor. Yeah. When were you going to say? Something? Yeah, sorry, I'm catching that echo. When when I take students, my first job, and and I take students very seriously, right? My first job is not to protect the student. My first job is to protect the profession. Does this person even belong in this profession that I'm in that I hold dear? And and if the answer is yes, if the if the person has a bias that's that just needs to be addressed or a knowledge gap that needs to be addressed, that's my job, right? That's what I look at as my job. But if the person doesn't belong in the profession, if they're just a jackass and they don't embody some of the, the core values and the code of ethics, then that needs to be addressed immediately. And I've had some students, I think three students in my career that were not part of the profession. They did not finish because they didn't belong here. And I don't know if that's a failure on the student's part, a failure on the school's part, a failure on previ previous uh, CI's part to, to note that beforehand. But that needed to be noted that these students did not belong in the profession. They just they didn't they didn't embody what we are as a profession based off of code uh, code, code of ethics and core values. But uh, if it's just a knowledge gap, well then that's where I bring research to challenge their biases. And and mm -hmm. I never I never try to challenge their bias because they are going to see that as my opinion. Who the hell am I to challenge their biases? Right. And, and I never put myself up high enough on that pedestal to be able to challenge their bias. And so I just bring them the research paper. Go ahead and read this and, and we'll have a discussion when you're done. Yeah. Um, well, so my point is, like, in terms of challenging biases is like asking questions. So asking that, that idea of just asking questions, keep asking questions. What's their why? What what are they thinking? Where are they coming from? And I think that the research thing is important, but that, but understanding where they're coming from when they even look at the research is also important because they have a perspective right? when they look at the paper. And so they are going to look at it from that lens. We all have that lens. We all have our own lens. So um, to me, it's important to understand, like some people are not going to respond well to questions. I had a discussion. I have multiple discussions with people where I ask them their why and they just shut down um and some of that is on me so i gotta refine those tactics but some of it is on them like they don't like the idea of being of answering so many questions because that means they're on like to them that's like oh i'm on trial i'm being interrogated and, and i think uh, it, i think it's different when you're dealing with clinicians right clinician to clinician i'm i'm not going to challenge you as much but as a student 
you need to make sure that you're coming into the profession not already establishing where you're going to be for the next 30 to 40 years. Clinician to clinician, mm -hmm. I don't have any leverage over you to get you to read a research article. But as a student, I got the leverage to make sure that you read this article because if you don't read this article, you're going to you're going to struggle on that professional growth part of the CI uh, uh, sorry of the uh, CPI form. Yeah. No, you're you're right. I don't it's interesting to me because I think about, so I got lucky as a student. I didn't have any awful clinicals. I had a very okay one uh, in my, for my second one. And like thinking about that, I don't even blame my CI completely because I think that she never got that mentorship. Right. That she really desperately, I think, wanted. So like some of the things she was doing was still was just stuff from courses or stuff from like that she misinterpreted from our we went to the same program from our musculoskeletal program uh, classes so she was trying to apply what she remembered back from school to patients years after the fact like not like a year after like multiple years after the fact and it was just it's it's that's that goes that goes to another point like we have to do a good job of mentoring who we are responsible for and getting them resources so that they can keep growing no matter where they go yeah and that they're comfortable to reach out you you bring up clinicals um again part of my history and and this is just some people are jackasses i was kicked out of a clinical i literally got kicked out of my second clinical third clinical and i had to go to find another place right because as a student i was strong on research right and and i challenged my ci and he said you know i asked to treat a patient who the patient had an obvious um you know i'm going to use the term derangement but he had an obvious issue in the shoulder that was going to respond to a directional load right this patient had already been treated in the clinic for six weeks and he wasn't making any progress. In a matter of 10 minutes, the patient came back with full pain-free range of motion in all directions. And, and the CI that I was working with, one, didn't want to allow me to treat the patient uh, based off of what I knew. And two, when I treated the patient, the CI went back in his office and started reading the damn newspaper. And so when I helped this patient out and the patient ended up getting pain-free range of motion in all directions, I thought, you know, in my head, I saw skies opening, you know, the heavens singing. I saw good things happening. And this patient went to the CI and literally told him off every which way from Sunday because he was pissed that he had just wasted six weeks in the clinic with somebody who didn't know who to, how to treat him. And so the CI said, Vince, thank you for what you've done. Uh, don't come back tomorrow. <laughs> so, yeah, I had to figure out where I was going. Uh, because he wasn't okay with having a, a, a student in a clinical who was a stronger or who was stronger at certain things than he was. It's ego. Exactly. Uh, so that's, that's another thing we have to deal with is, so that student that I was citing earlier, so this is like a comparison. I had a student from a, from like a, a basically a factory program observed me who I thought was great. 
and, and was early on in their clinical training. And then I, I saw a student who came from one of the best of the best programs with yeah. famous faculty. And they were already so certain that they were like, they knew everything. And that the only way that they would learn more is uh, residency, structured mm -hmm. residency. But anybody who didn't go through residency doesn't know much. Um, and it was just, I don't know, it's, it's a fascinating thing because ego, ego exists in our profession. We have clinicians who get really, really um, heated about like their views and, and how like this is the way. I'm experienced, so I must know like we have to like it's something I'm reminded of by Sandy or like it was mentioned to me by Sandy. Um, it doesn't matter how much experience you have. You don't know. You know, you don't know what you don't know. You to an extent you you're going to be wrong in a lot of ways. You have a lot to learn for the rest of your career. And and if you're not changing over time, you're probably doing something wrong. Right. Exactly. I completely yep. agree with that. It, you you have to be wrong in order to grow as a clinician. Yeah. Yeah. And like that idea of like understanding that you're going to go through a journey and that you don't know it all and you're still not going to know it all. Like the, the coolest thing with Sandy was she was so she was really humble despite her over three decades now of experience. Very humble. Very like, oh, I don't kind of like downplaying her, her knowledge and and her experience um, versus I've seen other clinicians who have comparable experience. And they're just like, until you hit my level, you're not going to know. I just, you know, you're not going to know. And and there's still some I still see some of that um, in other places like, oh, you know, if you had five decades of experience, you would know almost everything there is to know. I, that that's a that's nonsense but you it's it's a mentality of it doesn't matter what the experience is it doesn't matter what the training is we have to be open-minded and we have to be humble and understand that like at least in my opinion that the clinicians are the best educators for us that we have yeah i mean the the, the patients, patients the patients right yeah i, I understand what you're saying but um you know i i went back and and I'm reading some of the research articles that I read when I first came out in practice. And, and you know, two weeks ago, I read the descriptive study, the one that I got autographed by, uh, by Wernicke, uh, the descriptive analysis or centralization or something like that, uh, the Wernicke and Hart article. And the first time that I read the article, I picked out that, you know, if you don't get the patient better by seven visits, you're probably not going to get the patient better. And that was the main thing that I took from that. But... The second time that I read it, I took something completely different from the article where patients who partially centralize do just as good as patients who centralize in terms of their outcomes. And so like that gives me more confidence in knowing that I don't have to fully centralize the patient. And I read this article before, you know, 12 years ago. And now 12 years later, I'm still learning from the same article that I missed the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a perspective change, like that lens we talked right. about, right? The lens of looking at that article. And um, I think getting too caught up in rules, getting too caught up in um, pattern recognition, I think sometimes 
is a little dangerous. That's right. what something I've been commenting on social media. Like, you're just if you, what you try doesn't work completely, or or let's say there's like a flatlining, that's okay. You can try something else. It's gonna happen, and just be comfortable with that idea that you don't know. That to me, that's what I I figured out. Like, you don't know, and might as well just be open-minded and and go through the journey because the patient. I mean, the patient's ultimately the biggest determinant of their outcomes. It's not me. Exactly. It's not like you're giving guidance, right? Each person is giving guidance. I view myself as educating them, right? At least coming from where I'm coming from, educating them from where they are and seeing if we can bridge the gap and, and help them find a solution that works for them. But sometimes that gets lost amongst the the students and the new grads because they think, well, I got to fix people or I got to like, I had to have an immediate solution or I always have to have the answer. And I think that that's one of the largest weaknesses that I see. And I was, I fell into that trap for a long time. You know, when I got patients better, cause I got them better. When I got patients better, man, I was on a high. And when a patient failed PT, I was on a low. I mean, I was beating myself up. Like what the hell do I know? I don't know what the hell's going on. And then when, when my perspective switched, um, this was probably in 2010, you know, I mean, I was practicing for three years and, and when my perspective switched, now I am just part of the, I'm part of the experience. I, I'm figuring out where do I fit in their, in their episode of care? Do I even fit in their episode of care? Should this patient even be seeing me? And if they should, what do I have to offer them to help them out in their experience? And, and when do I need to bow out of the experience? Yeah, that's it's and it's a tricky thing. I don't think it's hard. It, it we all have biases about how how valuable what we do is. Yeah, right. <laughs> so how do you say like you know what, this isn't working, you know, or having having the ability to just say, you know, I don't think this is appropriate. Like I had a patient. This was months ago, I think, it must have been in like early February or January. And I saw them and I was like, I don't know if this is musculoskeletal. I just really don't feel comfortable saying this is definitely musculoskeletal. And they told me their history. And I'm like, you really need to go back and see your cardiologist yep. and get this settled because you have a cardiac thing. You have a, you have a situation and you have never settled it. And they were talking about insurance. I'm like, well, insurance might limit that, but that doesn't change the, the reality. Like, I could be wasting your time here. Um, exactly. But understanding that is hard. Yeah, and, and, and I deal with that relatively frequently in my setting because I currently operate in a, a primary care physician office, which also has an urgent care, right? And so if I see something that's, you know, automatic stop red light, um, we get that dealt with immediately. That's not something that gets played out over the course of days. That gets played out with now, you know. I, I sit outside the, the physician's door, whoever's on call, and uh, wait for them to come out because I need this taken care of before I can jump back into this case. So I need you to do something to allow me to step back in again. 
right? Whether that's BP medications, whether that's a referral to an ortho, I don't care what it is, but I need something from you in order to allow me back in because right now I can't come, because right now I can't come into this case. Yeah. Or even saying like, you know, like what, what you were talking about before where like a certain point where you just go, yeah, I don't think this is working. Right. Um, I think that that's hard. I mean, I've had patients make that decision before we had that discussion. Yeah, uh, I, man, this is, oh, this is fun for me. Like when I don't belong in the case, you know, I had a patient, um, last week, two weeks ago, we went through two sessions. He had something going on in the knee and I'm like, dude, this is not something that I have ever seen before. Um, you, you have something going on inside your knee that I would feel more comfortable with imaging before I continue going on. Right. And, um, you know, the, the patient got imaging and usually the insurance company is going to say you need to go through conservative care before they're going to do imaging. Uh, but in my note, you know, I, I saw the patient for two sessions and I'm and in my assessment and my plan, I'm like, I'm requesting imaging because I have no clue what's going on. I said it more professionally than that, but you know, that's essentially the gist of it. And the patient got the MRI and there was a, a four millimeter extrusion of the meniscus. I'd never seen that before. Right. I was like, man, that's cool. Cool for me. Right. That's cool. But it uh, sucks for the patient. I don't know what, pay, what what's going to happen next. I have assumptions, but I don't know what's going to happen next. I just know that I am not part of that patient's care in order to take them from this point to the next point. Yeah, I, I had um, I recently had a case where a patient came in and it just looked weird, like um, pain in every direction. Um, looked but like less so inflection so i was thinking like you know i i went through the case with multiple people to, to double check and it was like so this could be stenosis this could be pancos tumor this could be a bunch of things and i was just like everything i tried didn't work literally everything i tried didn't work i tried so many different things i tried tons of different movement patterns i tried loading like gentle isometrics i tried manual i tried anything um the only thing i didn't try is like you know like mo like modalities um and they didn't feel better so i was like okay i think this is an imaging situation yeah. which is one of the rare that i go you know what you should get in imaging i just don't usually do that because most people don't fit that right like those imaging rules um and they did the imaging and the imaging came back like there was basically nothing notable, <laughs> which, 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 which is like, okay. Awesome. Okay. I, one less I thing guess, to worry about. Yeah. It's, it's one less thing to worry about, but wow, that was, that was like, cause I was really nervous. Right. I was like, this could be bad and I could be wasting this person's time. And I kept saying, mm -hmm. I don't want to waste your time. And they're they were trying to be like, they were like, I don't want to waste your time, you know? Yeah. And, all, and But I was like, no, you need to get this because, like, we don't know. And we want to just clear this in case of this being a problem. Now I got the interesting challenge of having to figure out what's going to help them. Right. PT will. And, and then the other thing that, that happens at that situation is you've got to regain their confidence because you sent them to get an imaging because you thought something else could be going on. And now that it's not going on and you haven't been able to give them any relief, 
they're already starting, you're, you're already starting to challenge their confidence in you as a clinician. You've got to regain that confidence back, you know, and it's like, it's, it's, it's a hard dance to play, you know, where you're always trying to look out for what's best for the patient, even though we don't know what's going on at times. Um, but, you know, it's, it's trying your best not to lose that patient either. Because again, one of the things that I always say is I can never help the patient that doesn't walk through my door. And so if, if in doing so you lose that patient's confidence and they don't come back, we don't know what's going to happen with them. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, if they start showing signs, like I had a patient, I had a situation at one of my previous jobs where the patient went through different clinicians. So, so I was treating them, they were getting positive outcomes. And then my boss kind of like, started trying to like dominate and take over the plan of care even even though they weren't directly treating them they started dictating what the pta had to do with the patient and it threw everything off course and it never recovered and i was just uh, try the only thing i could do was be honest and say listen i mean it's obvious we're not on a in a good place here like you're not gonna i trying you're not getting better um i was like I think it would be a good idea to see somebody else. I was being honest. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. The views expressed during this podcast are that of the creator, Dr. Vince Gutierrez, and do not reflect the views of the authors that are cited during the podcast. Again, this is for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you have a physical limitation or a pain, please seek out a licensed professional. Thank you for listening.